You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Well, first, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, we, all, all of us, are in our own practice and praying for our local churches to pursue gospel-centered worship and that Christ would be glorified in our local congregations in how we worship, believing fully that God has mandated and outlined how we should worship Him. So thank you. It's just refreshing and encouraging to to know there are so many brothers in the same uh, war. And so we're glad for what the Lord's doing uh, in and through His church. Uh, and with that in mind, f- opening question, I-, I would love to hear from you guys as uh, from your vantage point, as you survey the landscape of the church from where you can see, what is it that you're praising God for specifically in the area of corporate worship? Bob, why don't you start? Okay, I'll start. Hey, about that. Uh, uh, well, I've been doing this for 40 years now, and um, really encouraged about all the thought that's going on, the intentionality, uh, the purposefulness that that's, seems to be increasingly present in the way people think about corporate worship. Um, whether it's not necessary doesn't have to be necessarily based on the Bible. Uh, but when it is based on the Bible, it's really good. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's been a dramatic change, I think, over the last decade for sure, um, as seen in, in what's happening at, at Southern and Boyce's uh, Biblical Worship Department uh, and other places. But it's just been very intentional. Things like liturgy, things like the words to the songs we sing, um, people are like actually thinking about these things and, and trying to uh, apply Scripture to, to what we do on Sundays. The significance of that, the impact it can have. So th- I find that extremely encouraging. Yeah, I, I could quickly come up with two, and, and one would be it's, it's a great time to be a worship leader and for, for a couple of reasons. One, just the congregational response, there's a, there's a greater desire to participate in worship today than there has been in, in previous decades. And I haven't been doing it for 40 years, but I've been doing it for 25. And I can remember just getting people to sing was a lot more complicated uh, because there's a greater emphasis now just on what it is to come to worship, participate in worship. And alongside that, and I think this is part of the reason there's a greater participation, there's greater resources than ever before to do it well than just what these guys are doing, both Bob and Matt and, and other people even in the room who, who are doing things to make their uh, accessible music that's, that's worth singing and that has, uh, has an ability to capture people's imagination and, and passion in worship. Yeah, I, I agree with both, both of you guys on that. And, and the other thing, it, along with the intentionality, I think there's a, there, there seems to be a realization that what we do in worship is, is, is formational. And, and people, people when, they, when they begin to realize that, and, and when, when pastors begin to realize that what we put in the lips of our congregations is forming and shaping their devotional lives, 
as Mike says in his book, it's a crazy pastoral opportunity. Mm. And, and, and where we've missed it, uh, we realize that, that our people are um, sometimes kind of lightweight in their, in their theological understanding of why we even worship. But where we're intentional about it, as, as Bob said, then we begin to realize what an incredible pastoral responsibility and how high the stakes are for us to, to realize that, that we're helping shape devotional lives as, as what we do on a weekly basis with our people. And, and, and to see that begin to happen is, to, is, to, is, is literally is one of the most exciting. It, it, it's, it literally is the thing that, want, that, that I think, I cannot wait to do this again this week. It's never a Sunday's coming up and smacking me along the side of the head thinking, oh, they just don't ever stop. It's, I can't wait to do what we get to do this week because the truths are so rich. They're so scripturally based, and people are going to leave here with, with that song in there. It, music makes it stick, and, and to see that is just, it's exciting. Yeah, as Joe was talking, uh, the increasing conversations about multi-ethnic worship, mm-hmm. corporate worship. Um, we're actually having conversations. Uh, just this past January, I was down at H.B. Uh, Charles's church in Jacksonville. African American—I was one of 30 white guys, and uh, most of them were exhibitors. And it, it was just a—it uh, was just wonderful. It was just wonderful to be there because I'm having conversations with all these guys whose whose heritage is so different, but whose aim is the same. We want to worship God in the way he has commanded us, prescribed for us to worship him through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. But we got all this tradition, so what do we do with it? And, you know, the white American church has to do the same thing. We got all these traditions, what do we do with them? What do we throw out? What do we change? What do we adjust? Uh, what do we add? So that's been very exciting to, to watch. The only thing I would add to, to that is I praise God for um, men like Bob Coughlin and Joe Kreider uh, and Harold Best and David Peterson. I, I started leading worship in 1995. Um, Scott's too young to include in you guys. Yeah, yeah y'all, are, y'all are old, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but I, I, started, I started leading worship in 1995. That's pre- um, in Christ Alone, that's the year that How Deep the Father's Love was written. We don't sing any other songs from 1995, but we do sing that one, and we should. Um, <laughs> that was the good one. And I think um, there was nobody. I remember being very influenced by a specific movement that was writing songs for the church at the time. And I remember being 15, 16, just thinking, I need to learn from someone. And I would send, uh, this was before email, so I sent, do you remember those days? I hand wrote a specific uh, songwriter, worship leader, a letter, and I just said, I need help. Would you disciple me? And uh, so I praise God for the way that he has given uh, the gifts of worship leaders who are, who are now mature, that have stopped and turned back to invest in younger worship leaders. Uh, that's the first evidence of grace I praise God for. The second in that same conversation is now, you know, a bunch of 30-somethings that, uh, that just got the keys for the first time, and uh, nobody knows how to drive yet, 
but uh, we're all over the road, and it's frightening. But I, I'm thankful for brothers who have been uh, influenced and trained by men like you guys. So thank you. Um, okay, so we've talked about what you're praising God for. What concerns um, would you raise, again, from your... It needs to be said, we have a limited vantage point from wherever we're drawing from. Um, but from your vantage point, what concerns, what cautions do you have for us as local church practitioners in our practice of worship, specifically in corporate worship? Well, thanks. <laughs> we, we, we have a phrase that we use a lot, and any of my students in here will just roll their eyes and probably move their head around like, oh, please be quiet for a minute. Our theology informs our philosophy, which informs our methodology. And sometimes we get so caught up on the methods of things that we have no idea where they're rooted philosophically, and we have no idea where they're rooted theologically. So I think, I think one of the things that I get a little bit frustrated about, not so much at the people doing them, because I think they have good hearts about wanting to share and teach and, and, and share methods and things. I think that's great. Just would love to see it be shared from a position of, this is, this is where we're rooting this in the scripture. This is where we're rooting this theologically. And this is where we're rooting this in, in our tradition, liturgically. This is where we're rooting this in our tradition from this perspective, particular perspective philosophically. And then it's so much more effective for our people to know, this is why we're singing this song and this is why we're doing it in that way. Because it really is rooted in something. So I think when I see or when I hear or when I hear people talk or, or conferences that are, seem to be so much pushed on the methods of things, hey, sound like this artist, do things like this, that, that still is just a little concerning because I think, boy, there's so much more on the bottom of this. You can see the top of this iceberg, but boy, there's a lot under there. Yeah. And, and let's go to that and yeah. let's see where this is rooted in Scripture and the gospel and, and to move from there. So, but I think that's changing. Praise God, that is changing. Um, but, but sometimes that's, that would be just from a pedagogical perspective probably more than anything, Matt. Yeah, I would say it's, it's still easy to be trite. Uh, it's still easy to be trendy. Uh, it's still easy to try to download the top 10 price charts or, or whatever you're looking at. Uh, and then there's external pressures to do that, even on the staff, uh, for, for the wrong reasons. And so uh, perhaps because we deal with music and it is so impactful, perhaps because it's, we're dealing with a lot of us in contemporary styles, it, it can change like the wind and we can be kind of uh, filled even sometimes internally a desire to stay fresh. And then I, I think it is sometimes hard just to stay fresh, I think, uh, but with the right things, the gospel the truth of God's Word, the, the way we approach worship leadership. And, you know, the way you come into a new position, there's lots of intentionality, lots of thought, lots of uh, wanting to do this incredibly well, and then it doesn't seem to take very long before we're filling in blanks from last week and, uh, and cheapening the experience. So that's, that's flesh there that just so continual battle. So. Can I just follow up on that? So with... Um Scott, you work with a lot of young worship leaders, and so what encouragements, what um, coaching are you giving 
them to help navigate through that experience. Yeah, I get a unique student at Boyce, so it's probably not the best uh, example for that. But, but yeah, just thinking, why did you put that song there? You know, what, what was the rationale behind that particular order or... Uh, why do you think we should do this particular song? Sometimes just trying to get behind the under the hood and find out what is what is the the, the rationale for that approach, you know, to, to worship. Because you know, when we're young, um, we haven't thought through all the reasons why we do something. We just have these impulses to go. Let's do that. Let's let's do the song. Let's do the style. Let's do this this approach to worship and uh, and just stopping them to say, well, let's think through that. Let's think through the implications of that. Let's not run that car on the road yet to just find out what happens. Let's Let's, let's figure out what the implications are going to be. Uh, yeah. Um, egalitarianism and experientialism. Uh, I think because a worship leader isn't a New Testament category, we, we kind of, men and women can do it together. And um, I think it's a it's going to cause more problems in the days to come because the, the role of a corporate worship leader is a pastoral role. And for those, who are for those who are egalitarians, it doesn't matter. But if you hold a comp complementarian convictions in Scripture, it will bring confusion. Uh, as, as women take, uh, say, a more prominent role in the leading of the, the corporate gathering, it will just cause confusion. At the very best, it will just cause confusion. But I think it can lead to more things. People asking, so, well, if she can sing and talk, but why can't she preach? And what's the, what's the deal here? So I think that would be a concern. Um, it... Can I say a third one? Okay, well, let's get to experientialism. And that would have to do with our understanding of the Holy Spirit and what does it mean to encounter God's presence. Just had a conversation with a guy about this uh, in the break earlier. Um, what you get is a, a revivalistic mentality that says, unless God, I feel God now, uh, he's not really here. As dangerous, it can become idolatrous uh, because you look to certain means as mediators of God's presence. And God doesn't, God is his own mediator. Jesus is the mediator. And so it's wonderful when God shows up and affects us. I mean, I felt it here, you know, different times. For, I'll be honest, first day, I didn't feel anything. First day, I was getting acclimated. Okay, what is, that's right, I do this every two years. All right, what is this again? And, but today, it's just been pure joy. You know, I'm just so caught up in the words. Where I can barely sing sometimes. Well, does that mean God's present now? He wasn't present the first day? No, it was just a present. I was just thinking about other things. Um, so, and then the third would be, and it's been referenced here, all the conversations about Catholicism. I was raised Catholic, and um, th there is an increased acceptance of Catholicism in the worship world. And when I say worship world, I'm using that in a very narrow sense of the songs that are sung. And so there's a danger in, I think, the songs we use in the church and then the songs that um, or the, the, the writers that we are associating with and stuff, just for that to kind of blend together and say, ah, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, worship's what brings us together. Well, yeah, it is if it's the, the worship of the one true God through Jesus Christ according to the Word of God. Yes, it does. <laughs> but outside of that, I'm not so sure it should be bringing us together. I just want to go back to the second caution you had on experientialism and then looking to mediatorial... Um, capacity in, in anything other than Christ. What are some of those things that uh, that we too often look to for mediatorial work? <laughs> <That's bad. laughs> 
Four on the floor, 120. That's right, yeah. The most popular post I've ever written uh, on worshipmatters.com is why a synthesizer is not the Holy Spirit. Um, so the synthesizer is, uh, which I just wrote a month ago. Uh, yeah, it's like uh, you watch videos and you think, like, can the Holy Spirit work without a synthesizer? I mean, is he? And Harold, no one said it better than Harold Best. You know, Christian musicians must be particularly cautious. If your people think that the Holy Spirit, that God is more present when music is being made than when it's not, you have to teach them. Uh, which is why, you know, at times here, it's just scripture reading. It's, there's, no, there's no instrumentation behind it. There can be. So I think music, just in itself, can, can take on this mediatorial effect. Even specific songs could, 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 could appear, could become mediatorial. Uh, the worship leader, maybe the most idolatrous expression of that, where we're looking to, oh, this person's here, so the presence of God will be more palatable. I just think we've always been guarding our hearts against those things. When our favorite preacher gets up to preach, these, we are not priests. We are sons and daughters. Jesus is our great high priest. Um, and we have been given a priesthood. But in a mediatorial sense, Christ is our priest. Um, you know, I, I think I would... Those are all really helpful, and I think helpful for me to hear again. Scott, you want to add anything? Yeah, if I could, just yes. the, the other thing that seems to still be a huge issue is, is almost like, it's almost Catholic, is the idea of the root screen that what's going on on the stage is where God's at work, mm. even the way that we're lighting the building and the way that we're focused and the way that worship is taking place, that up there is where the real action is. And, and uh, I was talking to someone yesterday in a Skype consult, and, and I it was much more traditional setting, but the same issue. I mean, it was a performance mentality that what's up there is, is very important that it stays just like it is because there are people who feel like that's the way God works here is through this massive choir and orchestra and all these instruments, but, but yet they feel like there's little going on in the congregation other than, than observing. For me, the, I, I think the caution um, is one that I, I have to remind myself of all the time. Um, it is the um, the holistic combination of head and heart. Um, you've got the you know tambourine crowd that does really well with heart, and we're like, hey, you should think about things. And then you've got the you know smells and bells thinkers um, that haven't felt since the Titanic movie was released, you know. And it was a beautiful film, beautiful film. Don't let go, Jack. Um, it was crystallogical. Yeah. And so um, I think for, in my own journey Just make as... make sure, don't go out and watch Titanic. If you've forgotten <laughs> yeah. a certain scene, yeah, yeah. don't, yeah. Please. So my, uh, my own journey as a, <laughs> as, as a worship leader, and even just as a Christian, is having, or maybe more importantly as a Christian, is uh, seasons where my heart outruns my head, and then seasons where my head outruns my heart. And just trying to pull my heart along or trying to teach my head to think. And so, um, surely, I hope that's a tension that you guys feel. I, I don't think I'm alone in that. But I, and, uh, I, I just think we've always got to be leaning into that and uh, applying the gospel to that and, um, and believing that when we look at some, a text like the Shema, like our response is a holistic response. It's not either or, it's both and all the time.
And so uh, that's, that's a, a, still a caution that I see, wanting our brothers who, f- who feel deeply, wanting them to also think rightly, and for those who think rightly, for them to also feel deeply. So, um, okay, this question, yeah, I'm going to add something. Uh, j- very briefly, I mean, I think we're all aware of this, but we, we so often restrict the head and heart thing to our singing. And I just want to remind us that it's our lives, and it's our head and heart in our lives. You say holistically, it's, it's everything we do. So, so what, what we do in front of people should re- be reflective of what we do at home with our spouse or with our kids or with our coworkers. I mean, the same motivation uh, should, should be present. Yeah, and along that, the idea that worship is event-driven is still alive and well, and the concept that there's a, a continuous worship at play, uh, got, as, a, as a practical theologian, and we'll have conversations, and I'll say, I don't think any of our worship guys are thinking about this. And they'll say, well, we've been thinking about that for years, so I'm surprised there's nothing out there in that in the worship world. Well, we're just still talking about the event. We're still talking about yeah. the corporate worship. Yeah. So how those two things relate. Um, so that question, Jonathan Welch emailed in. Did Jonathan leave already? So Jonathan helped uh, articulate that final, that, that last question. Next, John Strickland, are you here? John, thanks for emailing this in. So uh, this is for the panel. And this is something that I've already talked about with, uh, we, that we've already discussed and that is, is being discussed in probably every local church here. And here's his question. Is there ever a case when you would disqualify a song for use in worship because of the author or the movement that it came from, even though the text is sound? That, I think, is a, is a great question. I think it's also important for us, to, who, at least in my answering of this question, I would not say that my answer is the, is, has any kind of I don't know that I could point to a scripture and say this is my, my biblical reason for, for, for answering it like this. So I, I, would, I would be very careful to say that it would, would be in the context of each of our local churches to be wise in doing that. It's really interesting because a f- couple years ago, Christianity Today sent me an email. A person from Christianity Today sent me an email and, he, and they said, this person who's a very famous songwriter has just come out and said this about themselves. Would you use that, would you use music, or would you use a, a song written by that particular person in your local church? In 150 words or less, let us know what your answer is. Tweet it out. Okay, t- exactly. 150 words, I, that's short. And as I prayed through the, the answer to that question, I felt like, so I answered, I would not use the song. And, and, I, and I answered it that way for this reason. If, if it would do anything to redirect the, 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 the thought, head and heart, of anybody in that congregation or cause them to wonder or give them any type of confusion with, on the, on the last screen where the, the CCLI information and the, and the composer's name's there, if that would redirect them away from their response, to the revelation of Christ or, or his revealing himself to them, I don't know that it's worth it. And I, and I, I also felt like at that moment that um, there are enormous 
opportunity, enormous, the, the body of literature that we can choose from to, to be able to, to, to substitute another song for that one that might have been really good and might really have said what we wanted to say. If I can't find another hymn, if I can't find another song that says that, um, I would be surprised. So my short answer, a lot less than I've just given you, <laughs> in 150 words was, I, I don't think I'd take, take a chance in a congregation where I thought it would redirect people or cause any kind of confusion. Okay, so in, in that case, um, which in your approach, that very pastorally, and in that case, you have um, public sin brought to light. Okay, so that, that, and that's a wonderful response. Let's move it from less uh, personal. personal and clear, and let's muddy the water a little bit and see where answers may move to. Scott, Bob, anything to add? Yeah, yeah we do one Hillsong song. Guess what it is? Shout to the Lord. No. <laughs> yeah, Man of Sorrows. I, yeah, it, uh, and Cornerstone would be great, except I don't like that they left out the one verse. We could do the one verse, but um, anyway. Um, uh, Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows is a fantastic song. It's got substitutionary atonement. It's so easy to sing. It's a joy to sing. It's got the effects of the atonement on my soul. Now my guilt is paid. Uh, now my debt is paid. I've been set free. Paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. You know, the, the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. I mean, it's just brilliant. Um, that's the only one we do. So I, th- I think with, with, it, with a, and I think that's not to say you can't do more. I think the number of songs you might do from a group that you don't agree with is a statement in itself. And it, it can be helpful if you think, I think the two principles are edification and distraction. Joe mentioned the distraction one. Um, you know, is this, is this going to distract anybody to know that we're doing a song, say, by Matt Marr, okay, Catholic? Uh, will that distract anyone? If it does, yeah, it's not worth doing. And will it truly edify? So it may not distract, but will it really edify? When we sing Man of Sorrows, it really edifies. Uh, and, and no one's thinking, what's that line mean? What's that line mean? Which, you know, that'll happen a lot. But I think, I think you just got to ask, does this really edify biblically and gospel in a gospel way? And would it be a distraction? And if no, then yeah, I want to, because God can give great songs to anybody, you know, and he gives them to us. I mean, hopefully, uh, and, we're, and we're happy for that. So I want to honor that. I, I just want to say this is a question that every worship leader will need to answer. Um, and so I would encourage you, I had my interns do this a couple of weeks ago. I had a, this is a real case. It came, I got an email from a lady who, uh, a church, she's not a member yet. She's going through member, membership. And she sent an email and was curious why we did a specific song. And um, it led to some great discussion. And so I used it as a teaching opportunity. I said, guys, answer this email. And then I'll copy what you write and send it to this lady. I did, no, I didn't do that. I, I had my own respo- response, but I had them read out loud their responses to one another, and then I read them what I had emailed uh, her, and I had about eight other email exchanges with her that week as well over songs. And it's a challenging, it's, this is a pastoral concern. I, I'm even going back to your cautions of a complementarian view and how complementarian uh, doctrine 
informs this conversation. So now this is a role of teaching a church member why we do what we do, biblically, theologically. And um, we have to be ready for that. So I would encourage you, uh, just on your flight home, get out your iPad or you know, magical device and start typing some kind of response to a church member. Here's why we, we're doing this kind of a song. Think through. And this is, uh, this is compounded by record labels are now a big thing. What kind of song do you do? This brand. Rather than we sing gospel songs or songs about Jesus. Um, those things don't matter um, until they do. That <laughs> sounds like I'm running for office. Uh, those things do not matter. What matters is the truth of what we're singing. But because of the environment that we're in, also where a song comes from has an identity and carries with it a whole set of ideas. And so I think for me, thinking through, if we sing this song and one of our church members then f- listens to it, Googles it, and starts walking down the path of what this church teaches, where will they end up? That's, that's how I process it. So, for example, if we sing Be Thou My Vision, which is written by a Catholic, do I think that one of our church members might start Googling Be Thou My Vision and, and convert to Catholicism? I hope not. And I think the chances... Anybody, I've never heard of that happening. Um, but to sing a a specific stream of song and to follow its doctrine, to be influenced by its pastors teaching Gnosticism, existentialism, and the like. I think we have to use pastoral caution and care. So, um, And let me add that I, I, I think we can also learn from groups that are really popular. Like ask, why are they songs so popular? Um, I just I want to learn from that, you know what, because as Keith Getty says so so well, we don't need you know great theology set to good music. We need great theology set to great music. Right. We need songs that people really want to sing. Uh, and so you know when you hear a song, a lot of times the first thing people do is because we don't tend to hone in the lyrics first. We we just decide we like the song, and then we start singing the words, and that's how it yeah. that's how it gets in. You know, and, and I would just mention this, especially sitting here with you two guys, because we use so many songs. I, I serve at a LaGrange Baptist Church just north of, of Louisville. We use so many songs written by Sovereign Grey and, and Matt, your, your songs as well. And, and isn't it amazing that obviously I have the, I have the joy and the privilege of knowing these guys, but when, when, when they're producing songs and I see songs, obviously I look at the lyric content, but I know who they are. Yeah. So... This is kind of a flip on this side, too. Do, are we concerned about, you know, sometimes of, of who, but, but, but the other side of that, the other side of the coin is, I know Matt Boswell, I know Bob Coughlin, what a joy it is because of, of their lives, living out the gospel, living lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, and producing music like that, that I know is going to be serving our churches as well. So the opposite of that, kind of the flip side of that is, is truly a blessing. And I... I think I probably speak for everybody in this room, how grateful we are for you, both of you, and the way that you help us serve our congregation and congregations and the way that we help, help them put on their lips words that are, that are Christ-centered and gospel, gospel-rich and biblically accurate. Yeah. 
So, so thank you guys, and we're really grateful. Uh, Jeremy, where are you? I'm looking for you. Hey, how much time do we have? Okay, I want you, we have five minutes and 55 seconds. I want you to look at these men on this panel, and you can right now ask them anything that you want to ask in five minutes and 55 seconds. We're on the clock. Real quick, uh, and tell me your name. My name's Dave Cook. Dave Cook from Allsville, Kentucky. Kentucky says, uh, what would you do with a church member who's always requesting their favorite song? Regularly, that's fair. Paul Tripp has influenced you. Uh, who regularly, we don't always or never, regularly uh, ask for the same song? I, I real quickly, our congregation is getting to understand that we're scripture-guided, not song-guided and scripture driven, not song. So the scripture guides what we sing. So just a, a simple response. You know what? That song really is not fitting into the, the, the contour of the gospel. It's not fitting into the scripture that's guiding our worship this morning. Thanks for the idea. If we can use it sometime, we will. That's great. Is it a song they wrote? Because that's a different answer. Okay. All right. What's your name? David. David? From Delaware. Yeah. From Delaware. Yeah, I, I was thinking that we're in the conversation. I'm sorry, Matt. Will you articulate his question briefly and then answer it? Yeah, so the question is, um, how, how do we maybe keep some balance to what we're talking about in terms of we're all, de we're all deprived, we're, none of us can produce uh, a song from a, a pure well. So is that essentially what you're asking? And then how do, how do we not overreact or push away just because it's represented in a negative way or by a negative life? Is that close? All right. I'm glad I got close. I was thinking this when we were talking because I'm, I'm confident there are snapshots in David's life where I wouldn't have been reading his psalms if I had observed what he was doing at the time. Certainly, I think about William Cooper and, you know, great hymns, but there are seasons of his life where I'd have been very discouraged to think that he had something to contribute. So there's, there's balance there. It really muddies the waters for me to, yeah, Horatio Spafford. Maybe we could go down the list of everybody. Robert Robinson. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could, we could I mean, this could become complicated for any song from any source. And so I do think there has to be some evaluation of the song. I work in an environment where it's somewhat ivory tower sometimes. We have students very theologically informed. They pursue theology and they determine what are the good groups and the bad groups. And when the song goes up, they know where that came from and they kind of protest, you know, if it comes from a bad group. So, so there does have to be a certain amount of evaluation of the work of art separate from where it came from 
But then you ha- everything has connotations and how you shepherd people through the connotations. I mean, what Matt was saying was really making me think, wow, what if, what if someone Googles and then they research and they listen to a message and then what happens on the other end of that? How do I prepare that, that response? So uh, I don't think that helps you, but I think it sort of identifies with your, your plight. Uh, that's where I think we do have to have, the, it's, it can be helpful to have the category of, if I'm only doing one of these person's songs, that's a statement. And it, it draws attention to why we do the songs we do. And I was going to say, I think to another question, it, it can be helpful to regularly remind people why you do the songs you do. Just, just publicly remind them. Name and where you're from? Uh, Severin Hamilton from the Gathering Church in Portland, Oregon. Yes, question is, is there a freedom in just doing music and message versus f- trying to follow more of a lit- liturgy? Uh, and there's a, there's a propensity or there's a uh, tendency now for younger guys especially to, to, to be drawn to that, to doing liturgies. I, I think the effect of liturgy, I read, I think, Desiring the Kingdom, um, I haven't read Imagining yet, the Kingdom. Uh, Jamie makes some great points in terms of what we do every Sunday shapes, transforms, forms the lives of our people. I think we can misunderstand that to, to, to sound like, well, if we do a certain liturgy, it'll have this effect. You, you have got to examine the effect of what you do. Everybody has a liturgy, so no, I, I don't think it's more... We had the freedom for years in Sovereign Grace of just doing music and message. Yeah, and, and we, what we now do is a call to worship, songs, scripture, songs, pastoral prayer, welcome, message, song or communion generally, and a benediction. That's our liturgy. We have found it life-giving, freeing, much more consistent uh, in terms of what happens every week. So, so we've established some parameters. What we haven't done is say, okay, we'll do the same things every week, so that'll ensure that everything works for people, that they get the gospel. So even walking through the gospel in a whole meeting, we might walk through the gospel three or four times in our meeting. And, and what we're saying is, or what we're asking is, can an unbeliever come in here and hear the gospel clearly? And are the Christians who are coming here, the, the members of the church, are they being reinforced in God's holiness, our depravity, our need for forgiveness, Christ's full and complete securing of our forgiveness through enduring the wrath of God in our place and his rising from the dead and our acceptance of that through faith and repentance. And that's what we want to make clear every Sunday. So I think the biggest thing, is it Severin? That's a great name. Is to make sure that what you're doing is an intentional doing and that it is reflective of God's priorities, which is, I must be tired. He gave his only son to redeem sinners for his glory. We have the greatest message in the world. 
And, you know, a liturgy can point to it. It can't be it. So that'd be my answer. We're going to officially end right there, I believe. And then we'll, uh, we, we can stick around. What a, what a wonderful way to end. Um, it's amazing how the gospel impacts, never gets old.